There was no nuclear power industry at all when Rickover got started. He built an entire industry. My guest today is Mark Wardman. Mark is the recipient of multiple awards for his journalism and has written for Vanity Fair, Smithsonian, Time, Air and Space, and other publications. He's also the author of several award-winning books. His latest book is Admiral Hyman Rickover, Engineer of Power. Known as the father of the nuclear navy, Admiral Hyman George Rickover remains an almost mythical figure in the United States Navy. I recently sat down with Mark and we talked about how Rickover's development of nuclear-propelled submarines and ships transformed naval power and Cold War strategy, which still influence world affairs today. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I was really looking forward to it. Good. Well, thank you, Charles. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. All right. So the name of the book, folks, is Admiral Hyman Rickover, Engineer of Power by Mark Wartman. And I want to tell you, it's first of all, it's a, it's a great read. You know, you got this down to like 200 some odd pages in a pretty small, compact book. Uh, there's one thing before we even get into it. How come there were no pictures in here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wish there could have been. So this book is part of a series, Jewish Lives. Uh, it, the series runs everyone, everywhere from uh, King David uh, right up to Sigmund Freud, uh, Groucho Marx, Barbara Streisand, Moshe Diane, various religious leaders. And they all follow a, a pretty specific format. And unfortunately, uh, that format doesn't permit anything except a cover photo and the photo uh, on the front frontispiece. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, All it's right. it's really, but it also keeps price down. That's you good. know, it's it's a twenty six dollar book. That's good. And how many books can you get for twenty six dollars? I now? don't know. I buy Kindle, so I really have no idea. But all right, let's get right into it. Let's get right okay. into it. Admiral Hyman Rickover. Now, this guy is beyond fascinating. He's probably, I think you said, the only person to ever create an energy form. Is that, am I got you right on that? That's what you wrote in the book? I think, I, yes. So if, if you think in, across the entire span of human history, you know, you have the, the myth of Prometheus capturing fire. You have the, the various inventors who created the steam engine. But really after that, you know, I, I can't come up with anybody else in history who invented a new form of practical power. And when he took, you know, the kernel of the universe, the atom, and figured out how when you split it and it, it gives off heat, that you could capture that heat and use it to boil up water and drive, drive a steam engine effectively, uh, there's nobody else in history. It's it's unbelievable. And yet, how many people even know about Hyman Rickover? Right, this? right, right. So, you know, I jumped to the gun here because I've been waiting to speak to you, but I'm just going to give a two-second overview, and then you're going to take it from there. Here you okay. have a guy who is just a firecracker, Jewish, mm-hmm. uh, got into the Navy in 1918 or so. Uh, where there weren't many Jews even able to get into uh, Naval Academy. 
had a very tough time of it. He weighs 125 pounds, and he's, what, five feet, two inches tall? A little bit taller than that, but, yeah, he was he was a wisp of a guy. Wisp of a guy. Yeah. Just, just finds a way to piss off everybody in the U.S. Navy. But when he leaves, he ushers in the nuclear-powered submarines that many of us take for granted and change the course of warfare and change the course of the Cold War. Is that more or less accurate? I, it, you've encapsulated it well. This was a guy who came into the Navy when the Jews were decidedly not welcome. He made enemies in the Navy everywhere he went. He was a fighter. He was the definition of pugnacious. He, and he battled with the Navy and he carried out a revolution from inside of it and forced the Navy to come into the 20th century. You know, he used to say, if the Navy had its choice, they'd still be going in sailing ships. And he got them against their will to create a new form of energy to power submarines and nuclear carriers. And as a result, created an entire new level of strategic warfare. Uh, basically, these uh, submarines that are right now at this very instant, a thousand plus feet under the ocean, somewhere on deployment for months at a time. And though they are essentially an unstoppable weapon. You know, Putin at uh, at the start of his invasion of Ukraine said, you know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to put my nuclear forces on alert. Well, Putin may be an evil guy, but he's not one who wants to commit suicide. And as long as our submarines are out there, anybody who would dare to use nuclear weapons would be committing suicide. And during the Cold War, the Soviets couldn't keep up with our submarines. And they attempted to, they, uh, they spent a fortune, they essentially bankrupted themselves trying to equal American technology. Okay, so, so, so before you start, before you keep going, because I guess I just want to, this is something that I had no idea about, and I, I think many of, my, of our listeners don't. Mm -hmm. I want you first, well, there's two things. There's two things. One is to take the most... Uh, the most powerful energy in the world, in the universe, mm -hmm. and encapsulate it into a small area on a ship to power mm -hmm. it. That's science fiction. That's what this man yeah. did. But before that, tell me, submarines prior to uh, Hyman Rickover's brilliance in turning our navy into a nuclear, having nuclear subs, a sub could only go down for so long and go so fast, and there were just tons of problems and risk yeah. factors. So walk us through that. What was submarine warfare like prior to uh, the nuclear subs? Yeah, that's, that's, you're making a great point there, which is that submarines, we think of submarines, if you're old enough to remember, run silent, run deep, you know, submarine warfare uh, in uh, World War II, the U-boats out patrolling against the convoys, the attacks on them, the American submarines that went right into the Japanese harbor and 
harbors and attacked uh, Japanese ships. Uh, they these were incredibly brave men operating these submarines because they were, in effect, they were surface ships that could submerge. Now on the surface, they ran on diesel or, or oil. They charged up batteries. They had these big mattress-sized batteries inside the submarines. And then for short periods, measured in hours, they could submerge and they could go slowly underwater. They could get themselves into an attack position. They could attack and then flee. But they were, they were noisy. They were easily spotted. They were easily killed, the, to, which the U-boat commanders eventually discovered uh, once the U.S. could find them in the, in the Atlantic during World War II. But submarine forces on a per capita basis lost more men than any other service branches in the World War II. And, and to be a sub, to be on a submarine, it was a volunteer only position. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Okay. It was. It was. Uh, it was a dangerous, dangerous business. So when you create an energy source, wait, wait, wait. wait. Before, before we get into that, before we get into that, let me dwell yeah. on this yeah. because you, you, I didn't appreciate the amazing innovation and how uh, this man changed the nature of warfare, the nature of the security of our country, the just really took nuclear energy into the next phase. Or really not at the next phase. There was no phase prior. The only phase yeah. prior was yeah. blowing up stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. so a submarine prior to even World War II and prior to that, they were noisy, as you said. They could only submerge, what, it was 200 some odd feet or so? Or a little uh, more, um, um, you know, uh, they, around that probably, probably they could have a, a test depth closer to, to 400, 500 feet. But they but, couldn't go there that long because they would, the pressure would be yeah. enormous and pop the ship. Okay. So now you have that, you have a cylinder underwater going really mm-hmm. slow, making a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only defense they have really is once they shoot their missiles, there was really no defense. Depth charges come, blow them out of the water. Yeah. And yeah. my question is this. When a submarine is uh, under the water, submerged, why does it have to go back up to charge their battery, the batteries? And when it's up on top, how vulnerable are they? Yeah, good question. So when you are underwater, you're running on that battery. Battery charge will exhaust itself, just like uh, just like our electric vehicles now. So, but they were the equivalent of hybrid vehicles now. They would come back onto the surface. Once on the surface, you uh, where you can uh, get oxygen into the motor, so that you can run that motor off of uh, off of diesel fuel, and that motor is simultaneously charging back, uh, charging the battery back up. Got it. Got so it. that you get enough charge that then you can uh, you could submerge again when the time came for an attack or to flee. Okay. Now, 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 a submarine just by that definition had to have a fuel source because they could exhaust their diesel pretty quick. They couldn't go out and stay submerged or at sea for months and months at a time, right? They needed uh, a fuel source to refuel in the middle of the ocean wherever they were, uh, just to keep doing or patrolling or doing whatever they were doing, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and, and that was also true of aircraft carriers. So any kind of ship, you had to have either a friendly port where you could put in and refuel, and in the middle of the war, of a war situation, you don't know where that friendly, whether you have a friendly port that's going to be available, or you had to have an oiler that could travel alongside of you or come and find you, and then uh, at the speed at which you could continue uh, transfer oil to the ship, to the submarine that's traveling alongside you, okay. and which in itself is a fairly complicated operation. Complicated operation in the sense of you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, in the middle of uh, patrolling and you're out of fuel, uh, you have to call off the patrol or if you're in the midst of warfare or be, you have a, there's a series of problems where you don't have energy. And yeah. uh, they're really, it's, you know, it's like going into a, into a deep, into a swimming pool and uh, you, you can't swim that well. You can only go to the middle for a second and then get reeled back. It's like just swimming <laughs> away with your hand on the side because your range is so limited due to your fuel source or lack thereof. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, but the the submarines in particular had a still had a pretty f uh, fair range uh, with with their their load of diesel fuel. I mean, they could, you know, if during World War II, German submarines were able to sail across, steam across the Atlantic, get right to America's shores, and attack American shipping, and then steam back. Yeah, but, to, but my point is most of that time it was spent above on the surface. Absolutely. So that's, absolutely. you are extremely vulnerable as a summary. What do you have a machine gun on top? There's nothing you can do. Uh, you're they, dead. They, yeah. You're they dead. had minimal defenses. And once in during World War II, once we had aircraft that could reach the mid-Atlantic, uh, German U-boats at that point, were in Finished. real trouble. And when, once we had radar to spot them and aircraft to, to track them down, uh, that was the end of of Germany's ability to destroy American shipping right. going overseas. Shipping the merchants, the supplies, merchant ships. The wolf pack mm -hmm. was no longer. That was Germany's uh, biggest, uh, one of their biggest um, uh, psychological threats as well as uh, um, economic threats. I don't know how many zillions of tons went to the bottom of the sea because of the wolf packs. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, before we were able to take out those wolf packs. It was a horrific situation. Nothing more terrifying than being in a convoy going across sea and seeing your comrades blown up on the horizon. Yeah. 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 Okay. So now we have the cylinders that have uh, how many men are on these ships? 40, 50 on the, on the submarines? More, more than that. More than that. Uh, uh, a crew of a of a submarine, or you're talking about uh, prior II. to World War II. In World War II, they would have uh, about uh, as many as 120 oh, men. Okay, you have 120 men aboard. And mm -hmm. uh, you are running slow. Uh, you, most of the time you're spent on the surface. And all the limitations were, it was, it was hot, it was smelly, it was difficult, and you couldn't go down that deep, a whole bunch of issues. Now, here's this guy who is, an, he's an engineer by training, and mm -hmm. he comes and he upends everything that, he just he draws a new page. His inspiration, from what I learned from you, is he sees the 
the atom and says, we can take this and use it as a fuel source instead of diesel, instead of battery, and have these submarines stay submerged way deeper and way longer on this really seems like magical energy source and give us an amazing edge. Yeah. Speak to yeah. that. Yeah. So first of all, think about the situation when you're coming out of World War II. The concept of nuclear fission is Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, these bombs that can incinerate a city. And Rickover is saying we can engineer that same energy source in a controlled way, harness that power, put it inside a vessel, put that vessel or a container, put that container within a hull. This is, this is something that is shooting off radiation at levels that will, uh, if you get exposed to that radiation more than two or three minutes, your life will be over. And he's saying, we're going to take that, we're going to stick it inside of a hull. That hull is going to be something that is going to be able to submerge, not for hours at a time, but for months at a time. You know, people just thought, well, you know, this is, this is a, a great idea. Uh, conceptually, we'd of course love to see this, but this is not going to happen. This is, this is fantastical. You know, and if it does happen, it's just going to be a toy. It's not really going to be something that has a, a practical effect on the Navy, on warfare, on maritime affairs, on strategic affairs. And Rickover, who sort of burned with the fire of, of the atom, he said, no, not only is this going to happen, this is going to be a practical machine that is going to change the way the Navy works. You know? and, and he was ready to fight to get that done. And to put this in perspective, uh, this, at the time, the Cold War is raging. Mm -hmm. uh, Sputnik was launched. Uh, the, the fear and terror over the United States and the feeling that we were being left behind with this beeping, this basketball size uh, satellite mm -hmm rotating around our earth, freaked people out. This was going to be our response to Sputnik, in a sense. It turned out to be, but it, it, it was so uh, important to our defense and just the psychological makeup of the United States to know that we have something that the Soviets don't in a big way. Yeah, it, it was when we're sort of jumping ahead a little bit here, the, the United States launched the USS Nautilus in 1954. It went to sea in 55. In the summer of 1958, the Nautilus, by, at that point, had already set every record for submerged okay, operations. So let's, let's go through. So the Nautilus is the first nuclear submarine. It's, yes. it's the first one that is... It's not the battery diesel kind of thing. This is the mm -hmm. new age. We take nuclear energy manufactured in this steel container in the, in the hull of a submarine with people in tight quarters that if one thing goes wrong, they are dead from radioactivity or 
it blows up. A whole bunch of a zillion issues. Just throw out to me some amazing records that the Nautilus is able to accomplish. Well, if if we can reel it back just a little bit, just to think about what it took to build that reactor. So there was no nuclear power industry at all when Rickover got started. He built an entire industry. Just to just to to tell you uh, one example of what he had to accomplish, the United States had about eighty six pounds of zirconium, refined zirconium, when he started work. You know, we think about these uh, zirconium bracelets and all the other things that are made out of zirconium now. Zirconium, it turns out, is very good for shielding against radiation. Rickover needed tons. He needed tons of zirconium. And he needed it within a year and a half in order to build his uh, reactor in the time he frame he set for getting it done. He set up an entire new industry that was able to, to take zirconium that had previously cost $3,000 a pound and reduce the cost to $5 a pound and to uh, produce tons of it so that he could make his reactor. And when you say reactor, not only for the submarine, you're basically saying any nuclear reactor we have now that is producing energy throughout the world was all from the brilliance of Adam Rickover, of Admiral Rickover? Everything that has derived since in the nuclear power industry came directly out of what Hyman Rickover did during about a five-year period uh, in the early 1950s. You know, you know and, I, I read that in your book and I'm saying to myself, I just, first of all, I just put the book down. I said, it's, it's, it's not only unbelievable, it's that it's one of those things that if you told me, okay, I knew who Admiral Hyman Ricco was, father of nuclear sub, that's all I really knew. But the way you present it as a creator of energy uh, mm-hmm. and everything that started there it, we're the result of everything that throughout the world, all the nuclear reactors, everything. The whole concept of using nuclear energy was this man's brilliance in a small window of time by a guy who was so hated by so many because he knew how to push everyone's buttons. And I think you write that his goal every day was to make enemies, not friends. <laughs> you know, he just went out of his way to piss people off. And he pissed yeah. the chain of command off. He pissed the Navy off. Just as a, just an aside, he wore a suit instead of uh, a, a Navy uniform. And everything that we have is because of his brilliance. Is, do I have that right? I, I, I think that's, that's quite fair to say that. Of course, over the years, uh, there have been many changes, advances in the science, in the engineering. Prior to Rickover, there were the beginnings of efforts to make nuclear reactors. The Navy itself had an early program investigating the possibilities. It was put on hold during World War II. The first nuclear reactor was built underneath the stands of the University of Chicago football stadium by Enrico Fermi uh, in 1943. But this thing was as big as a house, and you're thinking about reducing it down 
making it safe. Rickover said, I have a son. I love my son. I want my nuclear reactor to be safe enough that my son can go on one of these submarines and be safe. That was his basic philosophy. And that, that was a really important philosophy in itself. You know, these are, uh, reactor is potentially incredibly dangerous. Uh, we've seen that at Chernobyl. Uh, we've seen that uh, most recently in, in Japan uh, with the tsunami. Three Mile Island resort as well. And Three Mile Island going back. And Rickover said it is essential that the sailors who are on board these ships be safe. And it's not just for the sake of their lives, as important as that is, it's also because as soon as we create something that people perceive as too dangerous to come into their ports, it starts to lose value. American, in the almost 70 years since the creation, uh, the launch of the USS Nautilus, the United States Navy has operated nuclear reactors under the most harrowing conditions, a thousand feet plus under the sea on surfaces where 50 foot waves are breaking and in operating millions of miles and millions of hours of reactor time. And there has never been a nuclear accident. Astounding. In the Navy. We presently, people don't realize this, the Navy presently operates 98 nuclear reactors. It's the largest nuclear uh, reactor operator in the world. And there have never been any accidents in those. And that's because Rickover created a submarine force and a, a nuclear navy for which both safety and quality and training were paramount. So I'm looking up here. We have uh, 71, I hope my date is right, 71 nuclear subs. Does that sound about right to you? Uh, it does. It does. We also have, we have 11, uh, I believe it's 11 nuclear carriers. Uh, we also have multiple prototype, or not prototype, training reactors. Oh, but before you even get into that, just I want to just put, just into our, into, into our listeners, uh, give context to this. We have, the United States has 71 nuclear subs. Russia has 33. UK has 11. France has 10. China has three. India has two. So if you add up second, third, fourth, and fifth place, I don't do three, four, 50. We're still, you add them all up and then some, they don't even equal to what we have. And, yep. and it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the most amazing weapons at our disposal, as you, mm -hmm. as you can tell us and share with us more. It, it, I think it was the Nautilus that went in 1954, so it went under the polar caps? Yes, which was, that was in, in August 1958. So you spoke about Sputnik. Yeah. So the, the Soviet Union had launched a satellite into orbit, and what immediately created uh, a moment of sheer terror within the United States was this idea that suddenly they could potentially launch nuclear weapons by rocket to into Europe, into the United States, 
against our allies. And, you know, of course, we're, we're going through that now with North Korea and that the potential for that to happen. Well, our answer was to or under Dwight, President Dwight Eisenhower, was to send the Nautilus to make the transition, the, the transit from Alaska to Greenland under the polar ice, something that had been dreamed of, had never been accomplished before. The, so some more, hang on a second. Of, hang on, why, I want you to expand on that. How, first of all, how deep is that? Uh, the, uh, at points under the ice there, it goes, uh, it can go as much as 3000 feet deep, but you're the, the real danger is that the ice is varies in, in, in thickness and there are, you know, uh, jagged points that can come down. And, and if you're, uh, sailing too close to the ice under the water there and hit it, it could, it could cause serious, even irreparable harm. That was a Titanic, was, right? <laughs> so, so it, it was, it was as big a deal in its way as sending a man to the moon. Okay. Now that's, that's the, that's the, that's how amazing this from just a few years earlier where they were going no more than three to 400 feet deep. Well, really three, I think 400 was really stretching it. That's when you had the most pressure. So let's call it these things were operating at 300 feet at, at, at best. So in just a few years, you're now going a thousand feet plus under one of the, a place that no one on planet earth has ever gone below, which is the believe the polar caps. And could you just share with us why that shook the Soviets in their boots, the geographic location from uh, North Pole, Greenland? Yeah. So what that means is that this undetectable, essentially undetectable vessel can go under the ice and go right up to the northern shores of the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union has their major bases for their Navy. And they didn't hear so, a sound. They would never have picked up any of this. Yeah, yeah. So there, you can bring an American vessel carrying torpedoes at that point, potentially special operations forces. And most significantly, what it pointed to was eventually we were going to be able to load missiles onto these submarines. And these submarines could, if they are at that point within a certain, within range of the miss of uh, Soviet uh population centers or military bases, those miss missiles then provide uh, a strategic threat to the Soviet Union. So this, this became our answer to Sputnik and uh, the potential for the, it basically ended the idea that one side could launch a first strike against us. And when the Soviets got their own submarines, that that we could launch a first strike against them. Although uh, we could talk about it. Uh, I've talked to many, many submarine uh, captains who've told me we knew where they were. They didn't know where we were. 
but it created the third leg of the triad, land, sea, and air, that assured that deterrence. So now you have, uh, this happens, what you said, 1958, uh, Nautilus. I think it's, it even surfaced in New York, I think. I remember seeing something to that effect, the Nautilus. Well, after, after the... Um, uh, after the transit of the of the North Pole, you know, which electrified the world, you know, there was a celebration or uh, uh, an announcement that took place at the White House. And here's here's we we talked about you know the hatred of Rickover. Well, so everybody who was associated with making this happen, except for the one guy who truly made it possible was invited to the White House for this big announcement. Rickover is not brought in. And later on, I read that one that the uh, acting chief of, of naval operations, uh, who at that time specifically did not invite Rickover because he hated the man. He said, if I ever catch Rickover in a dark alley, uh, it's going to be a knife fight. Right. Well, this was his knife fight. Right. And he didn't invite Rickover. Well, Rickover was a political animal. He knew uh, he had people who would back him to the hilt. They just happened not to be in the Navy. They were in Congress. Congress got wind of this. Congress went, they went bananas. They gave him a second gold medal, the second person in all of United States history to get a congressional gold medal. The White House, because of the politics that were blowing up on them. They gave him a second star, made him, uh, uh, increased his rank, his admiral rank. And then Eisenhower designated him as his personal representative uh, to the parade celebrating the Nautilus. It, so it sailed into New York Harbor to big fanfare. They had a parade down the, um, uh, down Broadway, the Avenue of the, of the Heroes there. And Rickover was in the lead car as the White House's personal representative. Quarter million people along there screaming out, way to go, Ricky. And, uh, you know, he turned, as he often did, he turned what was uh, looked like a, a, a real debacle for him personally. He turned it into a triumph. Yeah, it just seems, you know, I don't want to go into every detail of that, but, uh, but yeah, this guy, he just... It looked like always the end of his career. And he served 63 years in the United States Navy. Yeah, yeah. Has anyone served, even come close? Uh, so Omar Bradley of World War II fame was on duty longer, had a, a Navy career, uh, rather an Army career, as long as Rickover's Navy career. But unlike Bradley... Rickover actually served from the time he got into the, the Navy, uh, into the Naval Academy in 1918 under Woodrow Wilson. So the end of the First World War through to the beginnings of the end of the Cold War under Ronald Reagan, 63 years to 1981. It's a longer stretch of actual active duty service than any military officer in United States history. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. And yeah. one thing that many people don't know, even if people do know about Admiral Hyman Rickover, one of his famous officers, 
uh, went to the heights of power. Yeah. Well, a number of them did. A number of them did. Well, one only one sat in the only one sat in the Oval Office. Only one sat in the Oval Office. That's right. So uh, Jimmy Carter was a nuclear trained submarine officer. He was uh, back in the early 1950s. He's one of the earlier uh, nuclear trained officers. He was bound for being a um, uh, an executive officer on a submarine when his father died. And so he uh, resigned his commission at that point. Uh, but he had, uh, Rick Overhead was famous for his interviews of candidates to become nuclear officers. Um, they were very tough, tough, tough interviews. And uh, some people reacted badly to them. Carter came away from it when Rickover asked him, uh, did you always do your best? And Carter, who was a very earnest fellow, realized, he said, no, I hadn't. And Rickover said to him, why not? And that became the basis for Carter's uh, campaign uh, autobiography called Why Not the Best? And uh, Carter said that no man had more greater influence on his life than Rickover. Uh, and when Carter got to the White House, even before he got to the White House, I, I, I ran into some notes that Carter wrote to him. Uh, I found them in an archive saying uh, before he ran for even announced that he was running for office when he was back when he was governor of Georgia. And he invited Rickover to be an advisor. And, you know, I Rickover actually didn't really even remember Carter. But Carter said, you know, you had more influence on me than anyone other than my father. Um, but Rickover, once Carter got to the White House, he was welcomed in the Oval Office anytime. He served as a confidant, an advisor, something of a mentor. Carter even went over to uh, Rickover's apartment to celebrate his birthday there. He went out on a, uh, one of Rickover's submarine and said, this is the greatest engineering triumph uh, uh, in in human history. No, that's it's yeah. just you know. Um, I, the, the, by the way, folks, uh, the book is around two hundred fifty some odd pages. We're not. I'm not even doing it justice because we didn't even speak that much about what type of person Hyman Rickover was, the adversity he faced, the management style he had, the uh, the the, per, the the perseverance, the persistence, uh, having everyone chopping at his at his feet, trying to destroy him. And he just persevered. We didn't even get into that. So that's why I want you to buy the book. But what, what strikes me so is when I read this is how much I didn't know about um, nuclear energy, nuclear reactors, the amazing leap in a five, six-year period from, uh, from, from nuclear energy being a dream, from being a real – from a destructive – what was it? Um, what was a, a Oppenheimer uh, – what did he say? I am um, um, oh, the destroyer of worlds. Yes. Yeah, the destroyer of worlds to a destroyer of worlds to so, where where Rick oversaw something that even people today are in Europe mostly. And the problem is, if they have nuclear energy, they wouldn't be in the situation they're in now, worrying about getting oil and uh, gas from the from the Russians. But uh, the safety of it and the ability to transform uh, energy in a in a way that Nothing has ever done, nothing has ever will be done. A cheap, efficient way to control that he, people are freaking out 75 years later. Now, I just can't even imagine in the shadow of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
anyone saying, let's take this and put it into a small container, relatively, and put it in a tightly packed submersible and keep them there for, and put people around them. Mm-hmm. If you think yeah. about it that way, it's just, you got to be crazy. If someone told you that, you, you think they're talking science fiction. You're talking yeah. Jules Verne, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and and in fact, uh, people in the Navy started calling uh, the first commander of uh, that Rick over designated for the Nautilus. He's, they started calling him Captain Nemo yeah. uh, in a derogatory way because they didn't believe that this stuff was going to happen. That's amazing. You know, and look, and, the first submarines are called the Nautilus, right, after uh, Jules yeah. Verne. So uh, it's yeah. just, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to tell you, uh, Mark, um, uh, you did an amazing job here because uh, the book is long enough to include everything, but not short enough to leave you wanting more. Uh, mm-hmm. You have tremendous amount of footnotes in here, which I love, uh, really notes in the back here. Uh, how long does this take you to research? My gosh, you how many archives do you have to go through? To, to do? It'll just take you several years? It did. It did. It, it, was, uh, it was a three-year project from start to finish. Uh, it involved going to archives uh, scattered around um, Navy archives at the Submarine Force Museum, Naval War College, uh, the Navy Department Library in Washington, the National Archives. Uh, uh, but it ended up being a labor of love. I, I, you know, I started this knowing sort of that basic thing, father of the nuclear Navy. But what I didn't know was what it took to become the father of the nuclear Navy. And that that's really that's in fact why I called it engineer of power instead of father of the nuclear Navy, because this was a guy who didn't just engineer uh, a technology. He engineered an entire industry. He engineered an entire political environment. He engineered an entire educational setup to make it possible hey, wait, wait, to have. Can I add one more thing? He sure. engineered something which the Navy was considered, I think you wrote in time of uh, uh, Truman or Eisenhower, why did you need a Navy anymore? They're outdated. Put nuclear bombs and through the Air Force, the Air Force is going to be at the Navy. Let's fade it out. Yeah, 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 exactly. That After World War II, it was not clear what in a uh, world with atomic bombs, the role of the Navy could be. And because you couldn't put atomic bombs on airplanes flying off a carrier deck. And why is that? Why why is that? They're too heavy, right? Is that? They're too heavy. They're, they're massive. They're, they're gigantic. And then, and then just think about the idea of carrying a, you know, an atomic bomb uh, within a ship, yeah. You know, uh, you hit that with with a conventional warhead. Just think about what you would do. You know, so uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it, re- it really wasn't clear what role the Navy was going to have when the uh, the Air Force took command of our strategic uh, warfare resources. Yeah, it just um, you know, before I let you go, um, mm-hmm. I want you the movie. Um, um, I think it was Crimson Tide. Uh, uh, Hunt for Red October? Hunt, um, 
uh, well, no, it was, I think it was Crimson Tide I was talking about where you could have a, uh, I don't know if this was fiction or not. Maybe, maybe I'm confusing my movies. I think it was, the, which one was with Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington? That was Crimson Tide, right? The first one, The okay. Hunt for Red October was with Sean Connery where they were searching for the Soviet, yeah. uh, the rogue ship. Now, yes. in Crimson Tide, I don't know how true this is, and I want you to share this and give me your insight. It seemed, the, just the premise, the quick beginning of it, without, giving, without talking too much about the movie, is the, um, there is unrest in the Soviet Union at that moment. This submarine is going down. They surface to get orders, and the orders are to launch a nuclear strike. But before they get the, all the codes or whatever, the confirmation of it, the antenna is knocked off, and the whole tension of the movie is, do we follow orders? And mm-hmm. shoot first strike with uh, nuclear weapons from the submarine, or mm-hmm. do we wait and reestablish contact and confirm? And that was Gene Hackman was the Navy guy, and and um, Denzel Washington was the XO. My mm-hmm. question is, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, it, was that like just for movie sake, or do 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 captains of nuclear submarines have a first launch capability? Uh, do they have, so in other words, can they launch without, without orders? Or they get orders. Do they, are they able to, is there any safeguard? Because I remember the movie made it seem, and this could be only, this could be Hollywood, Mm -hmm. that a rogue captain of a nuclear sub uh, without any orders other than from word from the president, I'm not sure for what it was, but they said they changed it. So I'm not a hundred percent sure how much of a Hollywood how much, let me rephrase the question and strike everything I've said. How much power does a captain of a nuclear sub have to launch nuclear weapons? What, how does that work? Um, now, I don't know the specific sequences, but no individual on their own can give the order to launch. It has to be there has to be uh, multiple individuals who concur to launch uh, uh, any kind of nuclear weapon. Um, this is true land, sea, and air. Uh, as far as, you know, this of course is, if you think about uh, any number of, of um, Hollywood Films um, going back, Failsafe and Doctor Strangelove. Right, right. You know, there's this is this is uh, always the fear that there is a some kind of automated or otherwise uncontrolled uh, launch of strategic weapons. Um, nobody in and of him or herself has the ability to do that. I guess guess there was an article back, this is 1986, I'm looking up here, that there was an article by an Australian scholar that was quickly, I see here, uh, disavowed by the uh, Navy, which said that U.S. submarine commanders under some conditions can fire nuclear weapons without presidential permission, creating a situation where an atomic clash would likely begin at sea. And then the Navy responded, uh, that all nuclear weapons are carefully controlled and no ship or submarine captain can launch or fire a nuclear weapon without specific authorization from the National Command Authority, which is the president or his successor if he's disabled. 
I guess this was Hollywood at its <laughs> taking that yeah. and making a yeah. scary you movie. You know, they're both there. There, there are specific codes that have to be uh, that have to be uh, transmitted to the site, and then even at that point, the individual captain cannot make the decision to launch without the concurrence of other officers on board. Right. Yeah. The, the so, movie, in the movie was he was threatening other officers with a gun to their head to, to mm-hmm. with the launch code. Uh, but then again, it was once again, Hollywood at its best. You know, it's, I mean, yeah. uh, uh, there, there, there is every reason uh, to worry about the, uh, the proliferation of these weapons. Uh, but the worry is not that in some rogue individual within uh, the Navy Air Force uh, will will make the decision unilaterally, you know, I'm going to start a nuclear war. You know, that's not going to happen. Uh, but but simply by virtue of having so many of these weapons, you create a, a situation in which there, you know, accidents of one form or another uh, are always uh, are within the realm of possibility. You know, before I let you go, I'm just going to just I look this up because this totally fascinates me. And all, and all that you did, you started me thinking about um, nuclear subs and and, and, the, and the, just the technological marvel that they are. Nuclear subs can operate underwater for three to four months at a time and easily span seas. And this was coming from right before that you just said a few hours, right, back in World mm-hmm. War II or so. Uh, so you yeah. three to four months and you said it's a couple hundred feet, two, three, four hundred feet, maybe max. Uh, now they can go down as far as 300 meters, 984 feet. And oh, they can go deeper than that. Deeper than that. So this is an old article here. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah, deeper than that. Okay. I'm sure the um, Navy's not going to tell us exactly how deep they can go. And yeah. um, I'm looking here, the speeds, they can get up to um, uh, speeds of... Uh, they can go 35, 30 30 30 yeah, 35, yeah. yeah. Attack, so yeah, that, yeah. Uh, most of this stuff is classified. Yes, I'm sure uh, they're not going to put on the web for me to see. Yeah, but what uh, the, actually the Soviet Union invested phenomenal amounts of money to build titanium submarines that could go incredibly deep, incredibly deep, much deeper than, than our submarines which don't have that capability, but it's, that was fool's gold. That was money wasted because their, their titanium submarines are so noisy. We know exactly, we knew exactly where they were. Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and you know, you want to see something that's truly a comparison basis, go look up the record of accidents within the Soviet and Russian Navy nuclear accidents and compare that to the US Navy. Yeah, I think there were seven or eight or something in the Soviet and the Russian and we had zero. Yeah. yeah. We had zero, just and, amazing. And that that doesn't even count the sailors, the these uh, Russian uh, submarines are notorious for radiation leaks that may not kill people immediately, but where the they have to rotate sailors out so often because they're getting overexposed to to nuclear radiation Amazing. and they can't their their health starts to deteriorate right. 
I mean, it's uh, it's it's a uh, an awful situation for their for their navy, right. and speaks world to what Rickover accomplished because yeah. that's because of Hyman Rickover. Amazing, amazing. All right. So, by the way, just to, just to extend on that, you know, an immigrant who came to this country barely at six years old with his mom, and they almost had to go back from Ellis Island, and uh, and uh, here he is and creates a it's just amazing what he creates with all the adversity against him. So, folks, the name of the book is Admiral Hyman Rickover, Engineer of Power, uh, by Mark Warbin. Highly, highly suggest this book. I read this book. It's about two hundred some odd pages. I read it all yesterday, Mark. And I wanted this fresh, and I'm going through this, and like, uh, you start with this book, and you just think of context, and and so many things that uh, you keep you bring up, and I don't even want to go into it. Buy the book, folks. There are so many little tidbits of uh, of knowledge in here of what kind of brilliant guy this man was in terms of uh, work ethic, in terms of honesty, in terms of getting what he wanted. Sometimes really just really just walking the tightrope. Of, of, of being legal, but he got it done. He got it done. He took initiative. This is called moxie. It's called grit. <laughs> yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, or, or chutzpah. Chutzpah. <laughs> Nothing better than that. Nothing yeah. better. Mark continued success to you and, uh, and, and fantastic, fantastic book. Thanks so much for being on the show. Charles, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.